My name is Destin Garner. I have the privilege of being here tonight. Uh, when I was asked by Lauren to speak, I started thinking of some ideas. She said, I want you to just do anything you want to do, uh, but it starts with re. And I was like, I'm going to have some fun with this. So I started texting Lauren back. I said, hey, I think I'm going to do Jonah. I'm going to call it regurgitate. <laughs> I texted this obscure verse. After Noah gets off the ark, he like gets rip-roaring drunk, passes out naked. I said, I'm going to call it revealed. And Lauren didn't miss a beat, right? She just was like, I trust you. She's like, I'm going to spend a lot of time in that prayer closet for this guy. <laughs> Good news, we're not doing regurgitate. We're not doing revealed. But I do want to start with a story tonight. It happened about 12 years ago. I was playing golf. Uh, I couldn't get, you know, a, a men's set of golf clubs in my favorite bag, so I went with Dr. Pepper and Butterfingers. But I was playing golf. It just had a little, uh, little tummy trouble. I don't know, you, you may have been there before. Maybe, maybe women don't have tummy trouble, but uh, men do. And so I had some tummy trouble, so I tried to take care of it. The only way I knew how was to kind of go to the restroom. So I left the course, like hole six or seven. I'm up at the clubhouse just trying to, you know, help things out a little bit. And uh, I realized this is not working. So I have to, like, quit my round. I, I drive home back to our apartment in Austin, Texas at the time. Jamie's out camping with some girlfriends. And so there I am. And the pain just starts getting worse and worse and worse. And so I'm realizing, like, there's no amount of Tums or Pepto that's helping this thing out. About 30 minutes later, I found myself curled up in a ball on the floor around the toilet wishing I was dead. It was the harshest, most severe pain I'd ever felt in my life, in my stomach. And so I had to call Jamie and I said, hey, babe, I need you to get home. I need you to take me to the ER, like, right now. And so she has to leave her camping trip. I'm just laying there on the floor, almost passed out. But the next hour, hour and a half till she gets home and gets me to the ER. We get to the ER and they start scanning me and figure out, do a little MRI. They said, congratulations, you're the father of three kidney stones. So that was my first experience with a kidney stone. And I'm like, well, what do, what do we, what do we got to do about this? And they said, well, here's what we do with the kidney stone. We get this little cage grabber and we just get up there and pull it out. <laughs> I said, okay, uh, okay. But when you mean like we're just going to get up there, you, you mean there? And she said, yeah. And I said, oh. I don't know that we can do this. I know I'll be under, but I probably need to be dead. There was just something about that procedure. I said, Doc, is there any other option? And she said, yeah, what we can do is a very non-invasive procedure as well. It's just called lithotripsy. We just kind of blast it with some sound waves. I'm like, why didn't you start with that one, you know? Like, that's the one I want to do. Let's sign me up for that one. She said, well, here's the thing. Like, when that happens... It was going to, like, break up the stones, and you'll pass them, and you won't even know. Like, you won't even feel it, right? But we have to catch these stones. We have to gather these stones so we can analyze and figure out what the heck's going wrong and why your body's producing kidney stones. I was like, well, how do you expect I catch them, you know? She goes, oh, we got this handy-dandy discreet strainer, okay? So she hands me a funnel, and she says, just keep this on you, and, you know, whenever you got to go, just catch them. I'm like... Okay, yeah, no problem, that'll be easy. So Jamie and I are going out in Austin, we're going to Kent Rapper's uh, fancy restaurant in the domain uh, one evening, and um, so we're going, and you know, like, guys, we don't, we don't like, travel with stuff, we just you know, have our pockets, and I got this strainer, so I'm like, hey babe, stick this in your purse. <laughs> She's like, okay. So we get to the restaurant, and there I am, and I'm like, 
hey, oh, Jamie, it's time. I need the, you know, in the, some in the middle of this nice restaurant, candle lit. You know, there's no way to hide this thing. You might as well just hold it up and walk through the restaurant waving it. I'm going to go catch some stones. So lucky me, it was that night. I get to come out of the restaurant like, I got some. I asked the waiter for a little plastic Ziploc baggie, a little to-go bag to get some stuff home. And then I hand the strainer back to Jamie. Put this in your purse. I think she burnt the purse after this. So I get the stones and I take them to the doctor. And, and there's some things that can cause some stones. One is chocolate, okay. And so they analyzed it and they came back to me and they said they're, they're calcium stones. And I said, that's not the chocolate kind, is it? And they go, no. And I'm like, woo, let's go. And they said, it's calcium. we, we got to figure out something's happening in your body where there's a ton of calcium in your bloodstream. And so just test after test after test after test they go through. Come to find out I had a thing called hyperparathyroidism. And so you, congratulations, I don't know if you knew this or not, you have two parathyroids. Hopefully they reside here in your neck. I had one in my neck and one in my chest. It didn't wake up. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. It didn't, like, gradually go up here. And so although I thought I was this healthy individual, there was something out of place and out of whack and off inside of me. And what was happening was this parathyroid was sucking calcium out of my bones, putting it into my bloodstream, causing me kidney stones. Not only did I have kidney stones, but I also had osteoporosis. The docs looked at my bones and said, you have the bones of an 80-year-old woman. Now, if you're an 80-year-old woman, I'm not taking a shot at you, okay? I'm just telling <laughs> I'm just telling you, that's what literally what the doc told me, okay? And so it was like, what do we got to do? She's like, we got to get that parathyroid out of there. I'm like, not a go up there and get it type of surgery. <laughs> not that, huh? She goes, no, we're just going to cut your throat open. I'm like, that's fine. Just as long as we're not going up and getting anything, you can do whatever you want. So we cut my throat open. We take the parathyroid out, and my body slowly begins to heal. My osteoporosis goes away. I now have the bones of a 70-year-old woman. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think my bones are good and strong and healthy now. I've never had and experienced a, a kidney stone again. Now, I, I don't tell you that story because Lauren didn't invite me here to talk about kidney stones, osteoporosis, uh, lithotripsy, or cage grabbers. But I tell you that story because I wonder if it mirrors a spiritual reality in your own life where you thought you were healthy, you had spiritual vitality and spiritual life. But maybe whether you knew it or not, something's out of whack, something's out of place, something's not working right, and then there's an event one day. Something like wakes you up to your spiritual state of being. And maybe you look up and you realize, man, I'm not as spiritually healthy as I thought I was. I've experienced some spiritual atrophy. If I be honest, I'm in some spiritual strain. There's some spiritual struggle in my life. There's some spiritual pain. Something's out of place. Something's out of whack. And maybe you're here tonight and you're spiritually dry. And you go, how do I get back there? How do I experience life again? How do I experience spiritual resuscitation? How do I experience personal revival, a spiritual vitality that you once had that maybe over time has just waned and we've woken up and seen ourselves maybe spiritually dry, spiritually weak.
and spiritually unhealthy. And so I want to be just very practical tonight. I want to take King Josiah in the Old Testament and I want to walk through a revival he led for the nation of Judah. And I believe we can apply the principles of his life to our own life here today to experience spiritual revival again. To get back to that place of spiritual health that we once had, that intimacy and health and uh, relationship with the Lord. And the reason I want to talk about King Josiah, I don't know if you know this about me, if you're part of my life, but I have a son. He's six months old today. We named him Josiah because of this king. I love this king. I love this story. I love what happens in this. So I want us to look, I want us to read and ask the question, how in the world can we experience personal revival? It begins before we actually get to Josiah, we got to know the context in which he enters the scene. So 2 Kings 21, 1 through 6. It begins with Manasseh. Manasseh is Josiah's granddad. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hezebiah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he, Manasseh, rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, the father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as King Ahab of Israel had done. He worshipped the host of heaven. He served them. He built altars to pagan gods in the house of the Lord, which the Lord has said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. He built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He burned his son. As an offering, he used fortune tellers and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. Manasseh did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking God to anger. Then in verse 16 it says, and he shed much innocent blood, which people believe, scholars believe, that he pretty much killed all the prophets of God. Now I read that to you, 55 years of this guy's reign. 55 years of that. And we kind of get it, but like altars to Baal and Asherah and high places, I don't know that we really relate to that. So let me just fast forward it and put it in 2021. Here's what that situation would be like today. You roll in tonight, and what we have are there's different options on different floors. You can worship different gods. On the upper floor, you can worship one god. Here in this sanctuary, you can worship this. Not only that, but there's a group of men and women who are holy, sacred, and set apart that you can just go have sex with so that you can have more uh, success in your own jobs, in your career, in your life. When you come into worship, we've got the statue of Shiva over here. We've got a statue of Buddha over here. We've got the Jewish star in the back. We open with songs. We worship the sun. We worship the moon. We worship the stars. I get up to speak to you and I say, hey, this week I went and had my palm read. I talked to some dead people and here's how we're gonna include tonight's service. I'm gonna take my six-year-old son outside and I'm gonna burn him on an offer to Molech. And then some of you stand up and you're like, I'm not so sure about this. And I'm like, Lauren, kill him. This is the situation in Judah. And you got to realize, like, we live in a post-Christian culture, which means church is not the center of life for them. In Jerusalem, the temple, the church, religion, it was everything. 
almost like as much as school permeates our culture today, that's what this religion did. For 55 years, this is what Manasseh had set up in Judah. Manasseh dies. His son, Ammon, takes his place. The only difference between Ammon and Manasseh is that Ammon was worse. He was king for two years. Why two years, you ask? He was so bad, one of his servants just killed him. He said, I can't even stand this guy. Gone. So now that Manasseh's dead, now that Ammon's dead after a two-year reign, it's been 57 years of this type of practice happening all the time. They're like, well, who's next in line? Oh, great, it's Ammon's son, Josiah. And Josiah takes the throne at the age of eight. Now we realize Josiah didn't choose his grandfather. Josiah didn't choose his father. He didn't choose the time in which he was born. He didn't choose to be king. He just inherited this. Just mess was just laid on him. He just had to step in it out of no doing of his own. So tonight, maybe the first step in experiencing revival again is reshaping your perspective on the situation you're in. Right? Let's just be honest. Some of you are here tonight and you've experienced spiritual setback. You've had the spiritual life knocked out of you because of nothing you've done on your own. But just something that's been done to you. What your mom did, what your husband said, what your boss did what your best friend said, what your children did, right? You may have just inherited that. You didn't do anything. It was just laid on you. And and something happened to you, a a stranger, something like that, you don't even know. And so I think just to to be honest with that and say, I'm not trying to make light of that pain. I'm not trying to make light of that struggle. But could we reshape the perspective? I mean, Josiah is incredible. He didn't. He didn't want this. He didn't ask for this. So he could whine. He could complain. He could play the victim all day long. And none of us would blame him. We go, oh, you have every right. But instead, what's interesting, we'll see about Josiah, he gets dealt a pretty crappy hand. And he says, but you know what? How can I play this hand to the best of my ability? This is what I've been given. This is what I've inherited. So what am I going to do with what I have. My brother-in-law, he just released his very first book. He suffered from anxiety. He suffered from OCD. His family life has been pretty crappy, pretty miserable, and pretty terrible. He was dealt a bad hand. But yet now, he's going, what do I do with this hand? He took that pain. He took that heartache. He took those experiences, and he put them into a book, and he's selling it to tell other people what life is like with anxiety and with OCD. He's giving it to churches and pastors. He goes like, I've been hurt by the church. Pastor, would you read this and not hurt the people in your congregation? He's taking the hand that he was dealt. He's just doing the best he can with it. A show Jamie and I love to watch. We're great at starting shows. We're terrible at finishing them. But we started The Crown. And it's so interesting, right? As Queen Elizabeth takes the throne, and she's not supposed to. Right, her dad's got a brother who's supposed to be king. He's king for like a couple weeks and abdicates. Her dad becomes king and she's the oldest born. So there comes a day she was not expecting and she becomes queen. 
And there's all this tension. I mean, it's a fascinating show. It's a fascinating real-life situation. And I'll never forget in the show when she says this. I am aware that I am surrounded by people who feel like they could do the job better. Strong people with powerful characters, more natural leaders and perhaps better suited to leading from the front, making a mark. But for better or for worse, the crown has landed on my head. I don't know what's landed on your head. I don't know what you've inherited. I don't know what's landed in your lap. They've no control of your own. But my hope and my prayer for you is we can take a step towards revival, spiritual vitality again, by just reshaping the way we view that and just being, yes, it's a crappy hand, but how can I play this to the best of my ability with the remaining days that I have? Josiah takes the throne at eight. We see kind of next in 2 Kings 22, it's the 18th year. He's 26 years old. He goes to repair the house of the Lord. So he probably knows about Yahweh. He doesn't want to follow in the footsteps of his father and his grandfather. So he's probably trying to do the best he can. I imagine he's a puppet king. Like, I mean, how manipulated do you think you would be if you're an eight-year-old king? And people trying to vie for power around you. Eventually kind of becomes of age. He's 18. He's like, hey, the temple over there that's been neglected, the house of God that we're supposed to be worshiping at and giving all offering and, and sacrifice to God, it's in complete disrepair. He goes, let's clean it up. And so he sends a crew to go clean up the temple. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, as they're cleaning up the temple, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. He read it, and Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house. They delivered it to the hands of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. You realize what it means when they said we found the book of the law. They had lost the Bible. They lost the Bible. Not like, oh, yeah, I read it yesterday and can't find out where I put it, but like he didn't even know it existed. And there weren't like copies and devices and everybody's got a Bible. There's probably like a copy of the Bible. It's been missing for 57 plus, you know, 18 years. So something like 70 years without a Bible. They're digging around and they're like, Oh, my goodness, right? And they bring it to Josiah. And he starts reading this book. What we think at minimum, at minimum, it's the book of Deuteronomy. At maximum, it's the entire Pentateuch, the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible that he didn't even know existed, had been tucked away in the house of the Lord, delayed in disrepair. And so he hears this that this is what the Lord commands. This is what Yahweh requires of you and the people. So think about his options here, right? Someone brings this book to you, and you're like, no, your nation is nowhere close to doing what this book says. I I don't know, I'd just be like, put it back, you know, like hide it real good. I mean, like, I don't even want to deal with that. You could do that. You also may just go like, can't hold me accountable. I didn't know. I didn't know it existed. I didn't know we were, you know. 
there's a lot of options in this moment. But look what Josiah does in 2 Kings 22.11. The king hears the words of the book of the law and he tore his clothes. Just disappointment, anger, anguish. He is remorseful. He is sorrowful. He cannot believe how far off they are. You see, my friend, Revival begins when we stop ignoring and start addressing our sin. He could have ignored it. He could justify it, but he just owned it. He just received it and he just wept and he ripped his clothes. And so we are so far off. So the question we must ask ourselves today is, do you enjoy, do you tolerate, do you excuse your sin? Or do you hate it? Are you sorry for it? And do you want it to stop? Next thing we see in the text, 2 Kings 23.1. The king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the priests, all the prophets, all the people, verse small and great. And he read, in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar, and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined in that covenant. I want you to imagine how difficult this is. You're talking 57 plus years. And remember church and the temple and all this pagan practice is like the center of life. So there's a lot of money in this system. There's a lot of people's livelihood and daily practices wrapped up in all this pagan worship. Now you got the book of the law saying like, this has got to go. And so he, he has to stand up and gathers every single person in Judah. Every single person in Jerusalem says, hey, let me read this book to you, we're way off. Here's what I would imagine it'd be like today, right? Let's say you become the first female president of the United States of America, boom, glass ceiling shattered, let's go. And so you're sitting up there on top of the world and someone comes to you and says, hey, we were digging around in the Smithsonian and we found this book. Oh, we didn't even know it existed. And it says that, that all food must be made at home and restaurants are strictly prohibited and forbidden. <laughs> Hide that, put it back, <laughs> right? I was gonna make a joke about kava, but we'll just go on. Okay, and so that's the pressure. Like if you had to stand up in front of America and go, restaurants are done, they're forbidden. You know how much money, how much livelihood, how much supply chain farmers and organizations is all in that, and you're saying like, it's over today? That's what he's facing, immense pressure. And I think that's why he gathers everyone together because he can't do this alone. This is too big for him to make this change on his own. So he's like, I'm bringing everybody. Everybody's gotta hear about this. So the third step to take in experiencing revival 
is for you to recommit in a context of community. Now for him, he's leading a nation in revival, so he brings the whole nation. You probably don't need to go on Facebook and tell the world, but do you have a woman or two or three that you can just tell them, this has been revealed in my life. I'm ready to start taking it seriously. I need to repent. I'm showing remorse. I'm broken over it. I need to recommit. I want a revival. Do you have two or three that you want to share that with? Because, right, anything done in secret just is not going to last. Anybody ever tried to start a diet and not tell anyone else? You know the success rate on that? Big fat 0%. Yeah. Because you in your mind, like, I'm going to start this diet. Then you show up at a women's retreat, and there's caramel apples and popcorn. You're like, tomorrow. Yeah, there'll be something else tomorrow, right? You get a gift basket with Butterfingers in it. So you have to let some people in to hold you accountable. Recommit within a context of community. Next thing we see. Let me ask you this question. This is one you can write down. Think about process, pray over, journal. What recommitments do you need to make? And who needs to know? 2 Kings 23, 4, the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, for the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Go read the rest of this chapter. It's beautiful. Brother cleans house. I mean, just removing everything, burning everything, killing everybody. All right, let me just kind of give you a summary of it. He disposed the priest. He killed him. And he brought out the Asher from the house of the Lord. He broke down the house of the male cult prostitutes. He broke down the high places. He defiled Topheth so that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering. He removed the horses that the king of Judah had dedicated to the sun. He burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And on and on and on and on. Because the fourth step in experiencing personal revival is to remove everything that will lead you away from the worship of God. He didn't let that stuff hang out. It's like an alcoholic just leaving some some bourbon in the the pantry. You gotta get it out. You gotta completely remove it. And he sets a great example of that. My own life kind of saw this play out. And that, you know, one of, the, one of the jobs I do that I've just kind of taken upon myself is I'm the, I'm the light turner outer. And so, like, when everybody's asleep, that's, like, my last name. I'm like, bah, 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 you know, just feeling so good. So I'm going. I get to the last lights in the kitchen. I hit the light, and I turn and look. There it is. Snake in my kitchen. And so just so you know this, I just did what every strong, capable, masculine man needs to do. I saw that snake, and I hopped up on the counter. (laughs) Jamie was asleep. My newborn Bryce was in another room. She was sleeping. So I was like, whisper yelling. I'm like, Jamie, come kill that snake. I'm not above having my wife kill a snake, okay? 
I just, I have a deadly fear of snakes. It started, I don't know, I was walking through the living room one day, my dad was watching Indiana Jones. Indiana fell down that snake pit, I'm out, I'm done. I don't want to see them, I don't want to touch them, I don't want to look at them. You know, my girls love going to the zoo and they love going to the herpetorium, I call it the hell house, and so I don't go in. I'm just like, y'all go ahead, hope you don't get bitten by anaconda, right? I hate snakes. And so here I am, Jamie's not waking up, and I can't just ignore this. I can't just like flip off the lights like, all right, night. <laughs> so I go out to the garage for my killing tools. I get a rake. <laughs> Not like, I like malls more than Home Depot. So like, it's like a hard rake. And I go back in the house and I'm like, oh, please, Lord, just let him be at the same spot. And I look and, and he's still there. He was ready for a fight. He was taunting me. He's like coming up that wall being like, He can smell my fear, right? But I'm like, I gotta kill this thing. And so I couldn't, I'm not like gonna chop him. So I saw a knight's tail one time. So I'm like, that'll work. So I jousted him. I flipped that rake over. I put the wooden handle on the floor and I just brave hard. Ah! I pinned him up against the wall. The stake split in half. And I'm like, Whoa! I mean, I was feeling it. Then I went and woke up Jamie and had her get the snake out of the house. I really did. But here's the thing. So many of us in our spiritual lives see things that are a threat and are a danger and can poison us, and we flip the lights and we go to bed. We don't address it, and we don't remove it. And so when it comes to personal revival, we got to take a page out of Josiah's book. We got to get rid of it all. What in your life needs to be removed because it leads you away from the worship of God? Now, I want to do something here. I want to, I want to double click on this. I want to drill down this concept of removal from your life. And just to be honest with you, I don't see this in the text. This is destiny. I'm just exploring a concept here that I want to give to you to pray about, to talk to your spiritual community about, but I don't see it in the text. But I wonder, are there some, obviously we know the snakes in our life, those things that are a threat and danger and poisonous to our relationship with God, they got to go. But are there things in our life that are good, that are actually holding us back and weighing us down? from experiencing revival. I had this thought come up because I was reading a book, Think Again, by Adam Grant. He's like a work business psychologist, and he, he tells the story of these smoke jumpers. Smoke jumpers are firefighters who parachute out of helicopters and planes. They kind of go in behind where these massive wildfires are to, to fight them. 1994. Storm King Mountain in Colorado, boom, lightning strikes, sets this mountain on fire. So the smoke jumpers are deployed. They jump in, they parachute in, they start fighting this fire, but the wind and the weather changes. The fire begins to enrage. It's 30-foot walls. It starts to engulf them. It's not trying to redirect or fight the fire anymore. Now it's survival. They have to turn and run for their lives. That day, 14 smoke jumpers died. 10 men 
and four women. And so people later came back and they go, can we study this? Can we figure out what happened? So we can bring some training to some other smoke jumpers so that the smoke jumpers can go back home to their families, and home to their children, they, they don't get caught in this. And as the scientists like put the pieces together, they analyze it, here's what they found out. Is that all the smoke jumpers, they turn and ran, but you know they carry equipment, like really heavy, like a 25-pound chainsaw, like a 50-pound back, backpack. And the scientists discovered, had they just dropped the tools they used to fight fire, those good things, those good tools, they would have moved 20 to 25% faster, and all of them would have survived. And so the psychologist, he writes about this, he goes, why would so many firefighters cling to a set of tools that even though letting go might save their lives? If you're a firefighter, dropping your tools doesn't require you to unlearn habits and disregard instincts. Disregarding your equipment means admitting failure and shedding a part of your identity. You have to rethink your goal and your job and your role in your life. Fires are not fought with bodies and bare hands. They're fought with the tools that are often distinctive trademarks of firefighters. Organizational psychologist Carl Weick explains, they are a firefighter's reason for being deployed in the first place. Dropping one's tools creates an existential crisis. Without my tools, who am I? Now you may not carry around axes and chainsaws, but there are some good tools that you carry around. Things you know, assumptions you make, opinions you hold on to, actions you take, ways you behave, friends you keep, content you consume, and the style of life that you live. And some of them aren't just a part of you, they become your sense of self. Could it be possible that you're not experiencing the spiritual life you were meant to because you're holding on to so many good things, it's weighing you down? Could we let it go? I mean, social media is it's a great thing. You see pictures, stay connected with friends. Maybe you heard about this event through social media. Could you go home and delete every single account right now for the rest of your life? It's a good thing. Is it weighing us down? Perfectionism, it's a good thing to get things right, to do it well. But is it so heavy? and burdensome, that it's a good thing that may be weighing you down and holding you back from experiencing life to the fullest. The enemy of good is, or the enemy of great is good. So the question is, is there something you need to remove, set down, let go of that may actually be holding you back? Second Chronicles 35, two through three. I'm gonna to jump to Second Chronicles because there's, there's two accounts of this story and, and they each have different details. And so it gives us a, a, a bigger, brighter picture of all that happened. So Second Chronicles 35, two through three, here's what Josiah does next. He appoints the priests to their offices and encourages them in the service of the house of the Lord. And he says to the Levites who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house of Solomon, the son of David, the king Israel built. Then you need not carry it on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and the people of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be in the house. It was where the presence of the Lord and the high priest would, would go in and make atonement for sin. It's not in the place it's supposed to be in. It's been taken out. And so he says, 
put it back. It's our fifth step in experiencing personal revival is for you and I to replace back tangible items in our life that have been removed. Is there anything you need to put back in your life, physically present, that would lead you to worship? Because what is prominent in our life will take precedent. It's, it's fascinating. There's a, there's a guy, his name's Andy Couch, and he writes this, writes this book about the tech-wise family. But it's a concept that I think is a, amazing and can be applied to our spiritual life. He talks about that. What is prominent takes precedent. And, and you know this. Like, go home and try this experiment. Go buy a bag of grapes and a bag of candy corn. Take the bag of candy corn and shove it way back in the pantry. Take the bowl of grapes, pluck every single one of them off, wash it, put it in a nice bowl, put it right out in the middle of the kitchen. You know what's going to happen? What's easy to see, what's easy to access will be used. And maybe someone's going to find some candy corn and get after that, but that bowl of grapes is going to be gone in a day. Next, do the same thing. Put the candy corn out, stick the grapes in the bag, don't pluck them, don't wash them, just shove them in the fridge. Candy corn's going to be gone. What is prominent takes precedence. And so what Andy Couch says, he goes, when he's talking about technology, he goes, what is prominent in your home? Is there a big honking TV screen in the middle of your living room? Are there tablets that sit on the kitchen table and on the ottoman? Are there phones scattered all around in people's bedrooms and right beside their bed? What is prominent takes precedence. So he and his house... They have a TV, but it's in the basement. Or they have a TV, but it's in the media room. And he says what he does is he has a piano sitting out. He has art supplies available. He's got books and puzzles and games. He makes those things visible, usable, and prominent. Just apply that to our spiritual lives. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant, a physical, tangible item, had to be brought back in so they could worship. Like, is there something, a devotion? I mean, just, what about a Bible? What if you just opened up a Bible and, like, set it by your bedside instead of your phone? I mean, what, what if you took a devotion and put it on the kitchen table? So when we're sitting around having breakfast with the kids, like, here it is, let's go. Like, what are some things we can make prominent so they take precedence? Is there anything tangible that you need to reintroduce back into your life? Charles Duhigg, he writes a book called The Power of Habit. And here it is. You don't even have to buy the book. I'll just give it to you right here. You can tip me if you want to. Um, it's a cue. It's a response. It's a reward. Oftentimes the cue is visual. I see the candy corn. I go respond by grabbing a handful, discarding the chocolate ones, and I eat it, and my reward is a sugar rush. This is how habits form. Cue, response, reward. So go ahead and put something visible and tangible and do this spiritual devotion and then treat yourself. Like get creative with the reward. Like have a time of prayer. Like see a Bible verse and read it and be like, chocolate, right? <laughs> go ahead. Gather with a group of women. Have prayer time. And then go to Target and buy something. Your husband's going to be like, what are you doing? I'm creating habits, godly devotion right here, Pastor Destin. He'll invoice me, right? I'm just saying have fun with it. 
cue, response, reward. What are the cues, the visible, tangible, physical items we are putting prominent places so that we respond? And the reward truly would be an intimacy with the Lord, a spiritual vibrancy that we would receive. Last one, 2 Kings 23, 21. Then the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover, get this, no Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. The sixth step, final step to experience personal revival is to restore spiritual practices that kindle your affection for Jesus. I mean, the Passover was so important to remember that God miraculously delivered them out of Egyptian slavery, how the angel of death passed over their house. This was a command by God written to them in the book of the law, which they had lost, so they weren't keeping it. And Josiah, when, he, when this is revealed to him, when they discover this, he goes, we got to put this back in. We need to restore this spiritual practice to help lead us to revival. The question for you, are there any spiritual practices, habits, or rhythms that you need to restore? I mean, how about family dinner or date night with your spouse, Sabbath? It's a word, it's Shabbat. It literally means stop. Do you stop for 24 hours ever? Do you stop for an hour ever? Christmas is rolling around. What if we had a non consumeristic Christmas? And just like a, sp- the purpose of Christmas is a spiritual rhythm like Passover to remind us of our Savior coming into the world and we've consumerized it. Right, your kids are gonna hate me, but I mean, just like, let's have revival again. What about a quiet time? What about fasting? What about tithing? What about serving in our church? Is there a spiritual practice you need to reintroduce to rekindle your affection for Jesus? Now, some of you here tonight, you've been desiring so much to experience life again, but maybe the issue for you is that you've never experienced life to begin. That, that you kind of see all these other people, kind of these relationships, and you're like, man, I kind, of, I kind of want that. It feels like they've got this intimacy and this walk with the Lord, and so like, I want to have that, and so I'm going to try to do some of these things, I'm going to remove and rebuild and reintroduce and blah, 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 and it's just not working for you. And maybe for you, you can't experience life again because you've never experienced life to begin. Tonight, you can experience life to begin. You can have life before you have revival. You can have vitality in Jesus. Because here's what the scripture teaches us. Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loves you, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he makes us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Some of you, the only step you need to take tonight is to receive God's free gift of salvation. It's nothing you've done. It's a gift. It is a free gift. He accomplished it all. He did it on the cross and he puts it in your lap. He's like, stop trying to do these other things to have revival. You need to have vitality. 
because you're dead in your sin. And I am saying here, you can have life and have it to the abundant and have it to the full if you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone as your Savior. If that is you, please don't leave here without telling someone. Bump your neighbor right now. Make a commitment in your mind. I'm going to go find Lauren with some of the women's ministry staff. I'm going to let them know. Here's how I want to close with the same verse that, that sweet Karen opened. 2 Kings 23.5, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That's a statement right there. Put that on a tombstone, right? Life well lived. And I think about that, right? Of all the pressure Josiah faced, of all the opportunities to ignore, to justify, hide it, put it back, I'll just kind of do it with me, I won't bring the whole nation in. It's gonna be hard to remove all this stuff. But he does it anyway. He refreshed his perspective. He was remorseful of his sin. He recommitted within the context of community. He removed everything that led away from the worship of God. He replaced back tangible items. He restored spiritual practices. And he experienced revival. Now the goal wasn't just revival for him. And I hope you don't think that's the goal for you tonight. Even if you're spiritually dry and spiritually struggling and trying to get back, the goal is not for you just to be spiritually revived so you can just get in your warm blade and go, oh, me and the Lord, we're so good. The goal of you having life is to bring life to others. Your revival. So you can take it to your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and our neighborhoods and our community and our nation. It's not just, oh, man, me and God are so good. Good for you. You have life for a purpose, and that's to bring revival to others, to go, hey, I've got a six-step process, and I know the one, and, da, 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 and come with me, let me tell you, right? That's the hope. So my prayer for you, for each and every one of you, that you would not be just another woman, that you would not be just another mother, that you would not be just another wife, or another employee. My prayer, my hope for you is that as you experience revival and bring revival to your circles in your community, that this would be said of you. That there's never been a woman like you who turned her heart to the Lord with all of her soul and all of her might. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these amazing, incredible women who saw the verse, are you weary, are you burdened, are you heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. God, I pray you would answer their obedience to show up, to pay the money, to be here. God, I pray that this weekend they would find rest. Rest only comes in and through you because you are the one who gives life. And so, God, I pray over these women tonight. God, if any feel spiritually set back, had the spiritual life knocked out of them, maybe they did nothing. They just inherited a mess. 
God, I pray that these six steps would just be practical, tangible ways they could start to weave back in and put in place to experience vitality and vibrancy and abundance and that they would flourish. God, and let it not just be about them. But once they're filled with life, God, I pray that they would just pour it out and spill it over. They would be contagious and, and efficacious to give that life and to show that life to the other people in their circles, in their spheres. God, we love you. If there's anyone here who's never experienced life, they realize tonight they are dead in their trespasses. God, let them know you forgive them. The trespasses have been paid. They've been taken care of. And they can experience life by putting their faith and their trust in you. Jesus, you are so good. Let revival break out on this place, on this conference, on these women. We ask this in your precious name we pray. Amen.